If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The spark that started the Litton fire. I'm extremely disappointed. I'm frustrated. The results of the TSB investigation and why it's so surprising to residents. New restrictions for residents in the north. We are intending this circuit breaker to save lives. The four-week crackdown aimed at getting COVID under control. And a public mischief investigation involving Surrey's mayor. What we can now reveal about the case and the Global News interview RCMP have seized as evidence. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Residents of Lytton will have to wait for a definitive answer as to what sparked the deadly fire that destroyed their community. Witnesses are convinced a passing train played a part, but as John Waugh shows us, that doesn't match what the TSB found during a highly detailed investigation. The heartbreaking loss suffered here is without question. The whole village is going. The how it happened is what continues to haunt the people who called Lytton home. I know friends and, and others that that have just cried every day. Um, some are going through some pretty serious, I'd call it PTSD. Three and a half months after fire reduced their beloved town to ash and ruins, that burning need for answers has only been fueled by further uncertainty. Based on all of the information we've collected, from multiple sources, we have no evidence to support that railway operations caused or ignited the Lytton fire. The belief was the devastating June 30th fire that seemed to roll through Lytton from all directions was ignited by a passing train. CP train C73152-29 the last. Clock going 40 kilometers per hour, 18 minutes before the fire was first reported. Transportation Safety Board inspections of the train its forward-facing video and locomotive recorders found no anomalies. Interviews with rail employees and even load simulations, yielding no evidence a CN or CP train sparked the blaze. Burnt brake heads or uh, hot bearings or, or anything that would look like that could have caused or started a fire. The fleeting hope residents had about starting the healing process has faded like a wisp of smoke. The hurt made worse by a sense they weren't being heard. We did not have any direct interviews with any resident of Lytton. The Transportation Safety Board admitted it could not say with complete certainty a train did not cause the fire, which may have started just a stone's throw away from the tracks. It was within about five feet of the main of the center of the track. Finding the reason why so many residents have been left with nothing is now in the hands of the BC Wildfire Service and RCMP. If you have eyewitnesses to the account uh, of what started the, the, the fire and you don't interview them, how can you possibly come to the conclusion that you do? For the many who are still trying to pick up the pieces of their burned out lives, it's hard not to see the hole left by a lack of answers and not want to fill it with anger. John Hua, Global News. 
Well, whatever started the Lytton fire, the latest Transportation Safety Board statistics show that fires sparked by trains are skyrocketing. The TSB says the five-year average for train fires in Canada is 56 per year. Last year, that jumped to 79 fires across the country. To date this year, there have been 170 fires. That's a 200% increase from the five-year average. What we know is that with, with climate change, with increasing extreme weather and particularly hot, dry conditions, um, that given that fires uh, can be started by trains and given that they may be operating in these conditions, more needs to be done uh, to make sure that we don't have uh, a critical fire the Transportation Safety Board is conducting two separate investigations into fires started by trains. People are dying due to rampant COVID transmission in B.C.'s north. And at midnight tonight, the province is bringing in what it calls a circuit breaker to stop the spread. Richard Zussman reports on the new reality facing communities with low vaccination and high transmission. Cracking down on northern health. We also need to ask people in the north to do more. With COVID-19 cases climbing in the region and hospitals becoming overwhelmed, the province putting in new restrictions for northern BC. Personal gatherings now restricted to only fully vaccinated people. These are not orders to be gained or to be got around to try and float the rules because you think they don't apply to you. Haida Gwaii, Prince Rupert, Kitimat and Terrace exempt from the new rules due to higher rates of immunization in those communities. In all other parts of Northern Health, starting at midnight, nightclubs and bars with no food service must close. Alcohol sales are not allowed anywhere past 10 p.m. and people must be fully vaccinated anywhere a vaccine card is needed, bumping up the October 24th deadline. We are also stepping up our coordinated enforcement of the BC vaccine cards where they are required. Religious services will go back from in-person to virtual. The North behind other health authorities in terms of immunization. Hazelton, Dawson Creek, Fort St. John and Prince George continue to be the areas in this province with the highest rate of COVID spread per capita. I recognize the impact of what we are requiring of everybody living or working in the Northern Health Region and across the province. We are intending this circuit breaker to save lives. The word is worrisome to me in terms of how do we, how do we find a way in, in our communities to raise that um, vaccination uh, level of people that are dug in. People are dug in. This is not just impacting people in the North. 58 patients from intensive care units in Northern Health have been flown to hospitals in Metro Vancouver and on Vancouver Island, including here at the Royal Jubilee Hospital. All of them very ill. The measures will remain in place until November 19th and will only be removed if hospital pressure is eased and those lives are saved. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, let's take a look now at the latest COVID-19 numbers for the province. We have 580 new cases and 5,348 active cases right now. 348 people are in hospital with 153 of those patients in ICU. There have been nine more deaths due to complications of the virus, including a person in their 20s and another in their 30s. And nearly 83% of eligible British Columbians are now fully vaccinated. Let's bring in Keith Baldry now for more on those restrictions in the north and the numbers that show why they're being brought in. Keith? 
Yeah, we've been tracking the situation in the north for a couple of weeks now. No surprise we're seeing the measures announced today. If you've been paying attention to what's happening in the north, action was likely, uh, obviously, going to be taken. Take a look at the last week of numbers, the, the key indicators in the Northern Health Authority. In the last week, 12 people have passed away from COVID-19. Keep in mind, they've got 6% of the population, 25% of the deaths in the last week, 69 hospitalizations, 24% of the provincial total. As Richard said, 58 patients have been airlifted to other health authorities. 44 of those are unvaccinated. COVID-19 patients and many of these people are young people as you mentioned Sophie one person in their 20s one person in their 30s dying from COVID-19 one of those the person in the 20s was located in the Northern Health Authority a fact touched on by Dr. Bonnie Henry today we are seeing it cause more severe illness in younger people so if you were somebody who is young and healthy and thinks I'm just going to get through this no problem that's not the case now we're seeing this across the province, but particularly in communities in the north where unvaccinated people in their teens, but primarily in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, are ending up in critical care, ending up in hospital. And today, tragically, we had a young person in their 20s die from COVID in the north. And unfortunately, this seems to be growing in number. I just crunched the numbers since the beginning of September. 11 people under the age of 40 have died of COVID-19. That's a far greater number than any time we've seen in the pandemic. 42 people under the age of 40 have found themselves in ICU on ventilators. And this is a very situation for a younger demographic now. Hopefully the numbers improve in the near future, but we've got to get the vaccination numbers up in those key areas, mm -hmm. particularly in the Peace River area. We'll see if these restrictions help. Thanks for that, Keith. A long-term care facility in Burnaby is again the site of a major COVID-19 outbreak. As Aaron MacArthur reports, nearly 90 residents and staff at Willingdon Care Centre have now tested positive for the virus, and 10 residents have died. An outbreak first declared on September 27th at the Willingdon Care Centre has grown. On October 6th, 39 residents reported positive results from COVID tests. A week later, that number has grown to 69. 73% of residents have now tested positive. Combined with staff, 90 people are infected with COVID at the care home. There have been uh, a number of people who have passed away. As you know, we don't report that immediately. It takes a couple of some days. It was three in the report this morning, but I believe we'll be up to 10. There are questions about the waning effectiveness of COVID vaccines, especially Pfizer. Care home residents were the first in BC to receive protection, often on a more compressed time schedule than the rest of the population. While booster shots are being given out for this vulnerable group, Critics have asked if health authorities waited too long to approve a third dose. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization, as you know, uh, recommended six months between dose two and, do and uh, a booster dose. And that's what we have gone with here in BC. The question now is how did this outbreak so quickly engulf the entire facility? Seniors advocate Isabel McKenzie is urging more robust isolation procedures and practices to prevent spread throughout this winter. We've got to have a semblance of normalcy in long-term care, yes, but do we need to have an outbreak protocol similar to what we had in wave two, even with this highly vaccinated population? Despite the severity of the outbreak at Willingdon Care Centre, there's good evidence to support the protective power of the COVID vaccine. Seniors with severe breakthrough infections 
now twice as likely to survive as before the vaccines were available. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Well, it appears that despite pleas from Canada's business and tourism sectors, the requirement that anyone entering Canada have a negative COVID-19 test result isn't going anywhere for now. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland is now saying Canada will maintain its requirement that travellers, even returning Canadians, get a COVID test before coming into the country. The new demands to eliminate the test were sparked by Wednesday's announcement by the U.S. government that the borders will be reopened next month to fully vaccinated Canadians. Freeland says Canada needs to remain vigilant against the virus, which includes making sure those who cross the Canada-U.S. border are not infected. More controversy over the Massey Tunnel replacement. The hidden costs hampering any effort to assess if this transportation megaproject is going to be worth the money and time it's going to take to build it. That's next on the News Hour. A years-long battle over taxes he knew he didn't have to pay. When CRA wouldn't listen, Consumer Matters did. That's later. And proof giving is better than receiving. The incredible gifts this man gave out on his birthday. Coming up on the News Hour. Right now, though, the NDP government is under fire once again over building a new tunnel to replace the Massey Tunnel. That's right, the New Democrats have finally released the report they say justifies the decision to go with the tunnel instead of the bridge greenlit by the Liberals. But as Ted Chernecki reports, a lot of critical information is hidden from the public. Remember that 10-lane bridge the Liberals were going to build to replace the aging Massey Tunnel? And remember how it became an election issue with the NDP campaigning against its estimated cost of $3.5 billion. Well, you know the rest. The NDP won, the Liberals lost, and absolutely nothing's been built. We always said the bridge was the perfect answer, and the bridge would be opening, you know, literally a year from now uh, if we'd have kept the bridge project going. The government has finally made public its business case report on why it thinks an eight-lane tunnel is better than a bridge. Trouble is, you, the taxpayer, can't see where your tax dollars are going. Key segments of the report are redacted, blacked out, like the summary of risks analysis or the value for money calculations. Well, that's standard for any project that has commercially sensitive information before we've gone out to the tendering process. What we do at the end of the project is we release all of the numbers that were redacted. The public in British Columbia need to know uh, where we're going with this. We need to know what the figures are and what taxpayers are going to be paying for this. And Ted, on next week in the legislature, we will be pounding on the NDP, on Rob Fleming and on John Horgan to answer questions about this boondoggle. In August, the NDP announced its plan for an eight-lane tunnel, arguing that it would be about $70 million cheaper. But in so doing, about $100 million tax dollars of pre-construction costs for the bridge were tossed, and a whole new environmental review had to happen. And the bridge project had all pedestals on land. There was nothing in the Fraser River. And a tunnel in the Fraser River, maybe you did that in 1959 when nobody cared too much about the future of salmon and sturgeon, but you certainly don't do that for environmental reasons in 2021 or 2030 when they're talking about completing this tunnel. The reality is, is that it did not have regional support. Uh, it was also going to be paid for by dinging motorists uh, for... Uh, tolls each and every day they use that infrastructure. The minister says the Liberals never released its business case on the Port Man Bridge project. Ted Chernacki, Global News. Vancouver police have identified the type of vehicle involved in a hit and run 
that left a man with life-threatening injuries. Police are now appealing to the driver of a dark-colored 2016 Mazda CX-5 to come forward. Just before 6.30 Tuesday morning, that vehicle was heading west when it hit a pedestrian who was crossing East 41st Avenue at Fraser Street before speeding away. The 30-year-old victim suffered serious head injuries and remains in hospital. As our collision investigation unit continues to investigate and gather evidence, they are very confident that they will find the driver of, that the suspect was driving. However, we want to speak to that suspect. If you are watching, we are appealing to you. Please come forward. Um, our investigators will eventually locate you, so we, want, well, we do want you to come forward on your own accord to speak with our investigators. Police are also asking for the driver of a black pickup truck who may have witnessed the crash to get in touch with them, along with anyone with dash cam footage from the area. Surrey RCMP are issuing a public warning about three recent attacks on women in Wally and Newton. Police say in each of the assaults, a woman was walking alone and grabbed from behind by a stranger. The first happened Monday, September 27th at 5 p.m. at Bear Creek Park. The second, just before 7.30 p.m. in the 11400 block of Miller Road. It was the same day. And the third happened Sunday, October 10th, just before midnight on a path between 132nd Street and Edinburgh Drive. At this point in time, we have three investigations. They are all being run separately just to ensure the integrity of each individual investigation, as well as we have not, we do not currently have any evidence to conclusively link any of the investigations. So at this point in time, I would say we are looking for three uh, individual suspects. However, as the investigation advances, that could change. All three women were able to escape and were not physically harmed. If you have any information about the attacks, please call Surrey RCMP or Crime Stoppers. Homicide investigators have taken over a missing person investigation in Langley. Devin Goodrick was last seen in the early morning hours of September 25th in the area of 192nd and 28th Avenue in Surrey. Two days later, the 26-year-old was reported missing to Langley RCMP. Last Friday, the integrated homicide investigation team took over the case, saying it was in accordance with its mandate to probe high-risk missing persons cases. His disappearance is not believed to be connected to the ongoing gang conflict. If you have any information about his disappearance, you're asked to call IHIT or Crime Stoppers. Just ahead, Vancouver's increasingly crowded mayor's race. The important thing to remember in civic elections, as with most politics, people don't always do things for rational reasons. Ken Sim steps into the fray with a brand new civic party, hoping he can separate from the pack and create a better city. But first, startling new details in an investigation involving Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. It's still busy both ways for the Lionsgate Bridge as you make your way in and out of downtown Vancouver. And at the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge, it's still congested from the top of the cut by Lynn Valley Road, but it is easing off. And eastbound Portman, we do have a stall in the eastbound right lane. Need winter tires? No time for appointments? Drop by Mr. Lube and enjoy stay-in-your-car tire service on your schedule. No appointment needed. Mr. Lube, ready when you are. In the Global Traffic Center, I'm Amber Belzer. 
Well, we can now tell you more about an investigation into an incident involving Surrey's mayor. A case of public mischief is being investigated. That's right. Global News has successfully challenged a non-disclosure clause surrounding the gathering of evidence in the case, and Catherine Urquhart has the story. On September 6th, a limping Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum told Global News he'd been struck by a car two days earlier. He said it happened in the South Point Save-On Foods parking lot. McCallum said the driver was there collecting signatures for the Surrey Police Vote Initiative, which aims to keep the RCMP in Surrey. She pulled out and, and turned right. She clipped my knee and, and my bottom leg and then ran over my foot at the same time. McCallum told us he did his grocery shopping, went to the hospital, then spoke to the RCMP. They asked me if I wanted to lay charges and I said yes. Days later, Global News was contacted by the RCMP and told to preserve the interview. There's a non-disclosure order, so you know. Then, on September 21st, RCMP officers arrived at Global Studios and served News Director Bupinder Hundle with the B.C. Supreme Court production order. It stated they're investigating a case of public mischief. The requirements to, for getting a production order are almost as high as that required to get a search warrant. You need a sworn affidavit from a police officer saying, and this is important, that he or she believes that a criminal offense has occurred. The production order requested a copy of the raw, unedited interview I had done with McCallum, which is now evidence in the case. We were not able to report about the production order or public mischief investigation as there was a non-disclosure order. Global News hired a lawyer to challenge that order and today the judge removed it. We don't want people making false accusations against other citizens and expending our precious police resources. That's wrong. That's criminal. We requested an interview with Mayor McCallum about the public mischief probe. The response we received? The mayor will not be commenting. Also not commenting, Crown Council. The public mischief charge is being investigated by the B.C. RCMP's Major Crime Section Special Projects Unit. Special Prosecutor Richard Fowler is managing the case. Key evidence is believed to include surveillance video taken from the parking lot. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. BC's municipal elections are still a year away, but Vancouver's mayoral race is already looking a little crowded. Jordan Armstrong looks at the growing list of candidates, including how it sets up a rematch between some familiar faces. Vancouver's Flota restaurant has at least two claims to fame. One is its dim sum. Two is its reputation as a place where people with political aspirations go to raise money and win votes. Wednesday night, it was Ken Sims' turn. We're here because I'm going to be accepting the uh, nomination for uh, running for mayor uh, with a better city. The next election is October 15th. That's October 15th, 2022, a full year away. So what's up with all the early campaigning and fundraising for the top job at Vancouver City Hall? 
I think one of the reasons there's so much interest in Vancouver, and I would say also in Surrey, mm -hmm. is because both of the mayors are perceived as controversial, perhaps weak, perhaps um, challengeable. Ken Sim, then running for the NPA, did challenge Kennedy Stewart in 2018 and came within a thousand votes of winning. But that election saw a split on the center-left between Stewart and Shauna Sylvester. And, of course, Stewart still won. This time, the center-right vote could split between declared candidate Sim, the NPA's John Cooper, and independent Mark Marison. The left is, is hoping that the right will keep muddling around amongst itself and, and kind of cannibalize itself. Now, there's also the very real possibility of another candidate coming out of left field. Mayor Stewart, who was not available for an interview Thursday, is feeling heat from the left wing for voting down citywide parking permits. As for Sim... I think right now it's obvious that our council is pretty dysfunctional and it doesn't seem like they have a vision. And so we're going to build a team. We're building a movement that represents all of Vancouver. The fundraisers will continue. But whether Vancouverites have the stomach for a full year of campaigning is much less certain. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Now an important heads up about your commute tomorrow. An atmospheric river is on the way and senior meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with the details. It never sounds good when we mention that. When's all the rain going to hit? <laughs> So it starts tomorrow morning, Chris, and we're going to see this heavy rain likely right through until Sunday morning. So there's rainfall warnings in effect. Here's the distribution. So potentially west coast of Vancouver Island, Sunshine Coast, Howe Sound, North Shore Mountains and northeast metro Vancouver. We're talking about up to 150 millimeters of rain in that time span. So we're concerned about localized flooding and the freezing levels going to climb. So the snow we saw, the fresh snow we saw is going to melt. That's going to add to the rivers and it will likely be quite high in and around the rivers as well. Well, as you mentioned, we are expecting a slow commute, so we really urge people to give themselves extra time tomorrow morning. All right, let's hope the warning helps. Thanks, Christy. Just ahead, a $139,000 tax nightmare. Like they identified the problem. That was like two and a half years ago, but nothing changed. Years of arguing with the CRA couldn't solve it, but watch what happens when Consumer Matters gets involved. And how thousands of loyal customers might have their air miles wiped out. Join Variety, the children's charity, and Global BC as we celebrate Variety Week, October 18th to 22nd. Tune in to Global News as we share stories that highlight the hope your help can bring. Variety Week on Global BC. In Richmond, traffic is moving well to the Massey Tunnel. Counterflow is out there, but eastbound on Highway 91 and near number 6 road, we do have a crash. You're down to one lane. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. In the Global Traffic Center, I'm Amber Belzer. A BC widower is sharing a tax filing nightmare after the transfer of his late wife's RRSPs to his own RRSPs. The Canada Revenue Agency insisted he owed more than $100,000 in income tax on the transfer. He knew better, but after years of getting no resolution, 
he turned to Consumer Matters for help. And that's where Andrew has stepped in. And Thanks, Sophie. The Canada Revenue Agency, as you heard, insisted Brian Kirkham owed them over $139,000 after his late wife's RSPs were transferred, a transfer that should have resulted in a neutral tax situation. It was a battle he had been fighting for years. At what point is this going to get dealt with? At what point will they actually recognize what the problem is? For close to four years, Brian Kirkham says he desperately tried to resolve a tax-related error with the Canada Revenue Agency. Back in 2016, Brian's wife Cheryl unexpectedly passed away. Her RRSPs were transferred to Brian's RRSPs as a spouse and beneficiary. It was supposed to be a seamless transition. My wife passed away almost five years ago. And... Um, are still dealing with this stuff, like, and it shouldn't be. Um, this is a routine thing. Normally, the transfer of funds results in a neutral tax situation where no tax is payable. But the CRA insisted Brian owed income tax on those transferred RRSP funds of just under $240,000. They assessed me tax on that total amount as if I'd received this income going into my bank account in my pocket to spend. And at the same time, they charged me a penalty on the RSP contribution being over limit. The retired banker says the CRA told him he owed close to $140,000 in taxes. I was surprised. I was shocked. I was in finance for 38 years. I dealt with this all the time in my career. It's a, it's a routine transaction. Brian says his accountants tried to reach out repeatedly to the CRA to resolve the situation but got nowhere. We didn't count. We're, it's a big bureaucracy. I mean, to even try to phone into them, talk to somebody there, you get the runaround and um, no one was paying attention. Nobody cared. That's how I felt. Nobody cared. Making matters worse, Brian says he was contacted by the CRA Collections Department. It terrified me. I mean, this is the government and uh, what's the next step? You know, if, um, if I'm not going to pay it, then... They're going to do whatever they're going to do. Desperate for help, Brian reached out to Consumer Matters. I didn't know where to turn. That's when I came to you. Consumer Matters reached out to the Canada Revenue Agency on Brian's behalf, explaining his case. A week and a half later, Brian received a phone call from the CRA telling him they had reviewed his file and resolved the issue. They've reversed all of it, so we're now in that situation. It's all been cleared up. For privacy reasons, the CRA couldn't give Consumer Matters any details, and Brian says he didn't get much of an explanation either. Still, he's relieved his tax nightmare is over, and he can move on with his life. Just a sense of relief, and uh, just thank God it's at the end. You know, I just, it's, I, I didn't know how I'd get out of this. I, I really don't. And again, thanks to, to your team and yourself, um, I can't say enough to thank you. It's, um, so blessing. Brian says consumers need to be very aware that this type of thing can happen. He says he's met other people who have found themselves in similar situations. His advice is to talk to your bank and make sure they are on top of everything. Just hope the process doesn't go sideways. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Excellent work, Anne. Thank you. For sure. Canada's biggest airline received billions in financial aid to get flying again, but it turns out Air Canada is wiping out thousands of points belonging to loyal customers. It feels like a terrible betrayal for one frequent flyer with half a million points that simply went away. Her concern is it could happen to other loyal travelers too. Sean O'Shea reports. Canadians didn't fly much during the early part of the pandemic. Now people like Michelle Tetro are on the move again. And I've been a loyal customer 
For over 20 years, I've traveled over 40 countries. But Tetro recently found out Air Canada just wiped out all of her loyalty points. And I was shocked and dismayed when I saw a zero balance. She had 500,000 aeroplan points, enough for 20 return air trips in North America, erased in late summer. I don't believe I'm the only person who is experiencing this, Sean. I believe there's probably thousands of other Air Canada loyalists out there. So I'm just wondering how many people lost all their points there in, in that little span in July because they, their points were supposed to expire, you know, January to June. That's in the tens of thousands of dollars of value for flights. Air Canada recently rebranded the Aeroplan program and agreed to extend the period when someone's account could be inactive because of COVID. Other loyalty programs did the same thing. Majority of them have uh, paused this whole expiration. But flyers like Tetro, who followed government advice to stay home in 2020, fell through the cracks. She didn't accumulate points to keep her account active. It just doesn't make sense, Sean. And I'm hoping you can help me. Air Canada declined to be interviewed, telling us through emails it made its policy more flexible during the pandemic, but it refuses to reinstate Tetro's points. Yet Air Canada got a much bigger break, $5.9 billion in Canadian taxpayer aid this year. They're getting rid of our points during COVID, and yet they're getting uh, you know, accommodations and support through the government during COVID. This just doesn't make sense to me. Air Canada says a person should receive notice their points will expire 60 days beforehand. Tetro says she didn't get that email. Flying on a partner airline is simple. To Tetro says the loyalty program, intent on building a fresh image, missed the mark. 18 months to revigorate or repurpose what they're going to do from a customer relations perspective post-pandemic. And I think they failed to look at the mission statement that the president said the company was all about. They failed to yeah. deliver on that. Sean O'Shea, Global News. This weekend, Habitat for Humanity Okanagan will be holding its fall charity bottle drive at their restores in both Kelowna and West Kelowna. We'd like to raise at least $10,000. And we think that the community has really become engaged with our bottle drives. They look forward to it. We get a lot of calls and inquiries all the time. So we think it's growing and it has since we've started. And that $10,000 helps put a roof over someone's head. Dozens of volunteers will be on hand at both locations, collecting and sorting bottles. You heard the goal for this drive is $10,000, but that brings the total funds raised to $1.2 million, which will go towards 12 multifamily housing units in Lake Country for Okanagan families in need. Still to come tonight, a birthday celebration with a very special gift. I can see it did make a lot of difference. How the birthday boy paid it forward to help his community. And coming up in sports, Brian White's dazzling performance for the Whitecaps and how it seems like he's scoring all the goals, because he is. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. I've said this before, but Atmospheric River sounds like a prog rock band. That's a good name for a band. <laughs> <laughs> this is not one we're going to be able to paddle down. Although maybe, who knows? No.
(laughs) (laughs) True. I mean, it is possible. Yeah. So there is certainly the potential for some localized flooding. And we're concerned because the freezing level is going to climb. The snowfall we saw yesterday is going to melt. So we're really concerned about those rivers. So maybe you could paddle down the rivers because they will be raging. Although, don't because it'll be dangerous. Uh, I just want to remind you as well that uh, give yourself extra time as you're driving. And always a good reminder, when you have to turn your wipers on, it's also a good time to turn your lights on at the same time and make sure that people around you can see. This is a distribution of rainfall we're going to see. So far less across southern regions, the bulk of it from Metro Vancouver along the North Shore Mountains. And one of the reasons why we're concerned about those areas, certainly low-lying areas have the potential for flooding. Uh, Tri-Cities, Maple Ridge, those are the regions we'll be watching. So the wave moves in tomorrow morning. We're going to see it on and off to be heavy throughout the day tomorrow. But it looks like the next wave on Saturday could be even stronger. So tomorrow will be tough. And then Saturday, certainly tough. It's, it is expected to ease off finally by Sunday afternoon. But uh, by that time, uh, your weekend will almost be done after a, quite a soaker of a weekend. So there you go. Prepare some indoor activities. A high of 12 degrees tomorrow, 13, 14 on Saturday. So a little bit warmer flow than what we've seen over the last little while. Tonight's central windows weather window I really liked because it sort of gives that good image of how um, really you can have such a beautiful or BC so beautiful nonetheless, but such a beautiful scene even when there's a lot of clouds and it's sort of rainy out there. So thank you to Leanne for that one. Lovely. Thank you, Christy. All right, Squire joins us now uh, with a look ahead to sports. I watched a good deal of the Canucks game last night. I got to say, it was good. It was fun. It was good. It was a fast game, end to end. The Canucks, they got a bit lucky on their first goal, deflected in off an order. But coming back from 2 nothing, 2 nothing in the third period and getting a point made the head coach very happy. You know, come in on the road and battle back, get a point. Uh, pretty happy with our effort. And one of the players with a big effort last night was Nils Hoaglander. We'll talk about him. And a local developer celebrates his birthday, but he's the one giving all the gifts. What he did with $400,000 later. Good bonding game for the uh, Canucks last night, I would bet. Yes, and tomorrow they're in Philadelphia. It's part of a six-game road trip to start the season, and they wanted this road trip because they wanted to spend some time together and get to know each other. When the Canucks traded Ole Olevi on the weekend, a lot of us criticized Jim Benning for making him a draft choice in the first place. It was a bad pick. But to be fair, last night's 3-2 shootout loss to Edmonton was due to a lot of Jim's better draft picks, like obviously Quinn Hughes, who scored the Canucks' second goal. But guys you sometimes forget that were Jim Benning draft picks, like Thatcher Demko and Nils Hoaglander who assisted on both Canuck goals and played even on the top line for a while as well as the third line. And he made Louis Erickson's old number 21 look a lot better too. You know, Hogs, he can kind of create stuff on his own a lot of times. I thought, he, like I said, that third line was, they had a good game too and he was a big part of that. But, uh, you know, depending on his ice time and that, I'd like to keep Hogs between... 15 to 18 minutes, 14 to 18 minutes, and kind of shuffle him around because I think he can kickstart a lot of lines. He's, he's strong on the puck, and, and that's why it pays off when, when he's playing that way. And I thought he, he deserved to score score one uh, as well tonight. But uh, I like his game. He's, he's always given 100% out there, and, and he's not taking any shifts off. So I really like, uh, like his game tonight. Let's go back in time. Nine years ago, Duncan Keith did this to Daniel Sedin. The elbow right to the head. 
He got a five-game suspension. Canuck fans have booed Duncan Keith ever since. Last night, those Canuck fans finally got the revenge right here. Tyler Myers, who's like the CN Tower on skates, runs over Duncan Keith. That's a clean hit. He cut his head with his visor, but that's a clean hit. So there, that's for hitting Daniel Sedin nine years ago. Uh, Brady Kachuk has a new contract, seven years, $57 million, but he couldn't play tonight for uh, Ottawa against the Maple Leafs, but uh, didn't seem to matter. Tyler Ennis, 2-0 for the Senators. And then Alex Formanton, 3-0 at that point. Ottawa holds on for a 3-2 upset win over Toronto. That 4-1 win by Canada over Panama in World Cup qualifying last night moved the Canadians to third in the standings and the top three make the World Cup next year. There are more games to go, mind you. It was a huge win. But the winning goal, the second goal of the game by Alfonso Davies might be the best goal ever scored at this level by a Canadian man. I would have to say he is the best player in this entire tournament. Better than anything even Mexico or the USA have. Nobody is as good as him. Not only is he the best player out there, he's the fastest. He came out of nowhere to steal this ball and score. And that's a big strength for Canada. Speed. Alfonso's speed scares everybody in this tournament and it makes fellow Canadian players proud. Sheer desire, passion, you know, playing for such a big club. But coming back and, and doing those type of plays for your country, um, it was special. Uh, special to watch. Made me proud, and I'm sure he made the rest of Canada proud as well. This week, the BC Lions cut their uh, top running back, Shaq Cooper. It didn't get a lot of attention because Cooper only had 142 yards in five games. That would be a great number if you played football in quicksand, but of course they don't. Although it wasn't his fault, really. BC as a team acts like the games are played around swimming pool where no running is allowed. Last play of the quarter, they'll hand it off. They have not ran the ball much or well so far in this game and nowhere to go on that one. The BC Lions running game has been going nowhere all season long. No CFL team has handed the ball off fewer times, averaged fewer yards per carry, or accumulated the least amount of total rushing yards per contest than BC. And there's a couple reasons for that. You know, uh, I feel like that's what a lot of people say, like we don't run the ball a lot, but like a lot of our plays are RPOs. So, you know, we have the option to run or pass it. So just some, and our, you know, our RPOs are one of our best plays. So, you know, when, when you know, you get one or two plays and they're negative, you know, obviously, you know, coach is going to want to kind of get away from that and, and start throwing the ball a little bit more. But uh, just giving, just, you know, giving 13 the confidence that when he gives it to us, you know, upstairs, making their confidence to, to hand us the ball. And just so it's just really about building confidence in the run game. It's a confidence BC oozes with their passing game. It's no secret the Lions' first option is to throw the football. Understandable when you have the league's top-rated quarterback in Michael Riley. But if you and I can figure it out, so too can the opposition's defensive coordinators. Shut down Riley and BC's passing game, and the odds become heavily tilted against a Lions victory. You know, you think the CFL, you think it's a passing league, which it is, of course, and with three downs, it changes how things operate. But you also see the teams that, it, that are generally more successful, and they're the ones that are at least balanced and can run the ball. One is we want to do what we're good at. So if we're good at passing the ball, we still obviously want to focus on that. But there's no question you got to be balanced and be able to run the ball. And, and we haven't done it enough. Sometimes we call runs and end up there's an option to pull it and pass it. So some things like that happen. But, no, we need to make more of a commitment and get better at running the ball. The Lions have no problem running the football all week at practice, 
Just need to have the same mindset when it comes to executing during a game. You can't win championship without running the ball in the playoff either, so that's that. I like that. That also works as a mask and mm -hmm. keeping you warm at the same time. That is smart. <laughs> Multi-purpose. Double duty. All right, thanks, Squire. Up next, we're going to meet the BC businessman who celebrated his birthday by giving away hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is BC with Jay Durant, brought to you in part by Fortis BC, BC's energy solutions provider. Well, most of us expect to receive gifts on our birthday, but the birthday boy in our next story was the one doing all the giving on his special day. Jay Durant shows us more on This is BC. His philanthropy is truly inspiring. We are building an executive home. It's another busy period at work for Manjeet Lit. His property development company, Litco Investments, has half a dozen sites under construction right now. But he did take a little time off this week to present donations totaling $400,000 to the Surrey, Peace Arch and BC Children's Hospital Foundations, as well as the Progressive Intercultural Community Services for Guru Nanak Diversity Village. And he did it on his 73rd birthday, which came with a few surprises for him. People coming and shaking hands, saying, happy birthday, happy birthday. Then I asked them, I said, oh, you know, who told you? They said, it's on the Facebook. I said, oh my God, I forgot about that. His philanthropy work has been growing over the years. He supported many charitable organizations, including the BC Cancer Society, Global Village Foundation, and Kids Play. And I can see it did make a lot of difference. I know it's not big money, but still, to them, it's every penny help. Manjeet has been giving back to the community he's called home for the past 11 years. He moved from India to the UK when he was 19. 43 years later, he recognized the real estate potential in BC. A good opportunity to uh, do the business here because a lot of land is available, still a lot of land available. So, but it's gone, price gone up too much, but still. To date, these are his biggest donations, but there's more to come. There are plans to support other organizations, including St. Paul's Hospital. There's a long way to go before he turns 74. I want to ask you, what are you going to do next year for your birthday? <laughs> well, uh, put it this way, we will plan something. Jay Durant, Global News. Oh, thank you, Mr. Litt. Amazing. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, email your ideas to Jay. This is BC at globalnews.ca. Excellent way to celebrate your birthday. Sure is. All right, uh, Christy, final word on that atmospheric river headed our way. <laughs> yeah, so keep your umbrella handy over the next little while. Uh, so starting tomorrow is when we'll really see some of the heavier rain. And it's more so that we're going to see this prolonged period of rain. It's not going to be heavy the entire time. But yes, at times it will be right through until Sunday morning. Up to 150. <laughs> uh, that's a lot of rain. Thanks for the warning, and thanks for watching, everyone. Have a great night. Good night, all.